This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Next week is our 100th episode of Ruthie's Table 4, and to celebrate, we thought we would turn it over to you. If you have a question for me, a food memory you'd like to share, or a recipe you just need help with, record a message and send it in. The phone number is in the text below. Ask me anything. Happy birthday, Ruthie's Table 4. I would like to think that Simon Seabag, Montefiore, and I have much in common. We both had what he calls a loving and indulgent childhood. We believe in trust and openness and flexibility. Our families fled the pogroms of Romanov, Russia. We see food as one of the focuses of our life. Simon and I also love to tell and listen to stories, food and history, food and fiction, food and exploring. I love the stories. Simon has lived them. His books and television programs, Catherine the Great, Potemkin, Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar, Jerusalem, The Biography, Titans of History, The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918, and most recently, a fantastic book, The World of Family History of Humanity, educates, informs, and inspires us who read, listen, and watch. Today we're here together on a beautiful autumn day in the River Cafe to discuss this and more. Lucky me. Lucky me too. <laughs> Great to be here. Thank you for coming. So Simon, you've chosen, uh, you wrote to me, you called me, we spoke about it, that of all the recipes in our 12 cookbooks, you wanted to do the cannellini bean and chicoria soup. So you could read the recipe and then we could discuss why you chose this. Of course. Chicoria and cannellini bean soup. So this serves six, 250 grams of cooked cannellini beans, 200 grams of chicoria leaves, half a garlic bulb, fresh sage leaves, two garlic cloves chopped, three tablespoons olive oil and parsley leaves chopped with extra virgin olive oil. This has been marked up by by Ruthie herself. <laughs> so this is, this is a proper, this feels like an archival document. It reminds me of working in the archives <laughs> when you see Stalin or Catherine the Great. Um, I like um, to be compared. So I think of the Catherine the Great of, of, of restaurants. Not the Stalin. You might no. ask some of my staff, they might say I'm the Stalin. I'm not so asking that question, Ruthie, because I might not like the answer. No, I think you'll find out more Catherine. I think you're more Catherine I don't know enough great. about her, but I'm happy to take a woman over, the, I, over anybody over Stalin. I, I think so. Okay. I don't think you're a Stalin. But anyway, to cook it, in a large saucepan, cook the garlic, then the olive oil, until soft but not brown. Stir in the parsley. Add the chicoria leaves to the oil and braise until slightly soft before adding the beans. Put three quarters of the beans into a food processor with some of the reserved cooking liquid, and the mixture should be thicker and thicker. And return to the saucepan and season. Reheat. If too thick, add more cooking liquid. Serve with a generous amount of extra virgin olive oil. Well, that there just sounds good. And I've, I've already tried it. Generally oh being with a, a chicory. God, how am I going to be able to eat all of that? <laughs> oh, my God. 
That looks delicious. I think I'm going to switch plates now from the sea bass to, I'd say this is kind of River Cafe Georgian Lobbyo beans. Of course, people always compare Georgia, which is one of my favorite countries, to, to Italy, especially to Sicily. And the food there is a real mixture of Lebanese, Iranian, Persian, and Italian. And they're basically my two favorite countries in terms of food. So this soup is the ideal mix. Hi, hi, hi. I, I want to take it home with me. Can I? Can I take it home? We must... Joseph, Joseph made it. Joseph, it is absolutely delicious. It's absolutely delicious. Cannot waste a single bean. It's so good. Anything you've got, I'll take. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here with Joseph. This is a River Cafe classic recipe, is that right? It really is. It's in the yellow books, in the book two of our first books, and it's a real classic that we make. Almost every portion of the soup that I've ever eaten, Ruth has made herself, and it really reminds me of her and arriving here and learning how to cook. You know, it's that. It's early days River Cafe for me, anyway. It's more than maybe a bit more wintry. Uh, it's one of those recipes, like many, that it just has few ingredients. You know, so it has this chicoria, which is a wonderful green, which gets labelled a kind of bitter green, but really when it's well cooked, loses an awful lot of that bitterness and it's really rather sweet. And then chilli, and then if you've got really lovely cannellini beans, and that's kind of all it is. But it's amazing how those combination of a few things can be tweaked in different ways and it can actually be rather, rather different. But it's, you know, it's one of those rather hearty, quite thick country soups. What do you think? I absolutely loved it. It's a delicious mixture. Italian, mm. Hammersmith. Hammersmith. What part would you say was and the Georgian, Hammersmith? <laughs> your part, Rufin. The River yeah. Cafe part. And I love the way you've marked this up. Okay, well, and, it's yours to keep. And because, they, because I, I found out, I liked it so much, I found out that they, they had a, a bigger pot of it. So I'm taking that home with me, if I'm allowed. You're allowed. By the Catherine the Great of, of the River Cafe. So why did you choose it? I chose it because bean soup has played a big part in my life because I started off in the very early 90s with the fall of the Soviet Union. And I was always in Georgia. And Georgia became my favorite home from home. I was there for all its wars, its coups, its tragedies, but also I came to love its food. Mm. And the heart of its food, the heart of Georgian cuisine, is the bean soup. And lobier bean soup is the national Georgian dish, one of them, along with satsivi, khadrapuri, and all these other delicious dishes. But in Georgia, they have the Georgian supra, which is a feast. And there's a tamada who's elected the toastmaster. Mm. By the way, Stalin was always, of course, toastmaster yeah. at, his, at his feasts. But he was a Georgian. But, of course, normally the... Um, the Toastmasters are a little bit more benign than that. What does a Toastmaster do? He tells stories, he makes toasts. Quite often, he goes around the table and clinks glasses with different people. Mm. Basically, what's unique about the Tamadam is that he's a storyteller as well, oh, which is. brings us back, which is why I thought food and stories. Mm. But, you know, I have many... When I was there, the Soviet Union was falling apart. This is 1990... 1989, 1990, 1991 to sort of 94. And I was very lucky. I'd been an investment banker, believe it or not. I left investment banking and I went out there. And I was in all the wars of the former Soviet Union. But some of my favourite moments were in Georgia, eating lobbyo beans. Once I remember in the Ossetian War... Where is it? Ossetia is north of Tbilisi. It's a region that broke away from Georgia and was backed by Putin 
and is still backed by Putin. But I went up to the war and I was with the Georgian side and we were up at the top on this kind of amazingly beautiful mountain with these amazing Georgian churches on the mountaintops. And the fighters all lent their guns against the tree. And a bit, so I, I was kind of imagining I was in a hemming, you know, for whom the bell tolls. It was a bit like that. And there was this huge table laid out for a Georgian oh, that's face. That's a kind on of, the, war, the, that's interesting that during, you know, the fighting, they had yeah. a table for a well, face. Well, three boys had been killed in the village. So this was their funeral supper. So we, we all sat down and we, the Tamada took control. We all made toasts. And everyone got drunk and drunk and the food, more and more food kept arriving. And then after a bit, I said to them, you know, you've got to imagine we're on the top of this mountain, the blue sky in the distance. And I said to them, you know, the, the, I guess in the funeral happened earlier because the, you know, the boys were buried earlier, I guess. This is their funeral supper. And they said, no, they're with us. And they lifted up the tablecloth and their bodies were under the table. So... You can see why I have a visceral feeling for Georgian feasts. Would it be very regional, the food? Do you find very that Georgia regional. is very different from Chechnya, which is different from... Very. The Caucasus is fascinating because it's, it's the sort of borderland of empires. So there's a huge Persian influence. They controlled it for a long time. There's a huge Ottoman Turkish influence. They controlled it for a long time. And then the Russians. And now, of course, it's three independent republics. And Chechnya tried to break away. And I was in the Chechen War in 1994. So I witnessed all this amazing stuff happening. There's nothing like Georgian food. And Georgian food, it does have a touch of Lebanese food, um, touch of the Persian, Persian food, yeah. yeah, Persian, Arab, and Turkish. But it's, it's none like any other because it's filled with coriander and tarragon and walnuts and ajika, which is sort of chili sauce. It's very original. It's not like anything else. I think you'd love it. Zadis, who's with me, has a brother-in-law, Jason Osborne, and he's yeah. Georgian. And he's actually doing the Georgian Film Festival, yeah. he called me this morning, and has very, very strong roots in Georgia, and brought me a cookbook with a chef who had written it. And it was so interesting. It was you know, beautifully done, first of all. It had a sense of the culture, and then it had the cooking. There are dumplings, a lot of dumplings, too. Yeah, they have um, dumplings, which, which I forgot the name of, but... All the dishes have a sort of role. And in that way, Georgian food, it's almost like there's a story behind mm. many of the dishes. It's not quite like a Passover Seder night, mm. but the, the Georgian supra, that's the thing it's most similar to, is a, is a Passover dinner mm. because of the storytelling. Yeah. And of course, Stalin used to sit up with his cronies and have these Georgian Did, was feasts. He, I think you alluded to the fact that he was a good, he was a good eater. That he, he was, was interested in he food. Loved, he loved Georgian food. His real name was Joseph Jugashvili. Many in Georgian names end in um, Adzi or Shvili, which means son of. And he came from Gori, which is a small town in Georgia. Till he was about 30 or 40, he, 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 he was completely Georgian. He spoke Georgian. But his mother, who was very ambitious for him, and she wanted him to be a bishop or an archbishop, because she was very religious, she got him into the seminary in Tbilisi, which is where he was trained to be a priest. There they were taught Russian, very good Russian. And if he hadn't been taught Russian, he could never have ruled the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union. Do you speak? Yeah, Badly. I can tell. Well, I can tell when you were naming the soups and the names. If you speak Georgian, you have to learn. It's well, nothing Georgian to do is with completely nothing different. to do with Russian. No, yeah. it's nothing to do. With, it even has a different alphabet. And they have an amazing history. In the sort of 12, in the 11th, 12th, 13th century, Georgia was a huge kingdom. And at one point, under the great queen Tamara, who's another great female ruler who I write all about in the world book, it ruled from the Black Sea to the Caspian Sea. 
and was one of the great powers of the, of the Near East under a female ruler, which is quite something. And so going back to Stalin and, and being a good eater, what, when you were writing your book about him, what did you find out about his food? He loved, lo- he loved lobbio and he loved kajapuri and he loved all the soups. He loved, loved chakapuli, which is the lamb stew. And he used to put Georgian bread in it, soak it and eat it. He was a great trencherman. One of his few winning features, I should say. But the interesting about Stalin was he reinvented himself several times. I mean, he became Stalin, which means man of steel, um, in, ni- in about 1912. And before then, he'd been basically Georgian. And Stalin is a kind of Russian-style name. And so he reinvented himself. He was kind of always a Georgian in terms of kind of eating and drinking. He loved Georgian wine, for example. And the thing he really loved was Georgian singing, because Stalin, surprisingly, was the star choir boy of the seminary. His falsetto was supposed to be the most beautiful falsetto, very high and very pure. And when his voice broke, he became a tenor. And even when he was dictator, uh, even during the terror or just after the war or during the war, he liked to sing to piano. And he used to sing, there's a very famous Georgian song called Sulico, which his speciality was singing that. So... He was this rather sinister choir boy. A choir boy. Going back to the beginning, tell me about growing up in the Montefiore household. My father was a doctor who was also a psychiatrist. He had a very fascinating practice. So we grew up in a very kind of strange household because the surgery was under the house in Kensington. He had all sorts of patients. He was the sort of person that saw lots of people for free. But also he had people like Peter Sellers and Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, and they actually did a sketch about him. Did they? Yeah, because whatever you said to my father, whatever terrible thing you'd done as a child, he'd always say, don't worry, Simon, that's perfectly normal. Oh, that's what you want from a psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) And a father. Five cents, please. Yeah, yeah, and a father. So their sketch is, there's there's a sketch where where they go to a psychiatrist based on my father, and everything they say to him, he says, don't worry, that's perfectly normal. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just ask, what's the connection between the Montefiore Hospital and the Montefiore family? Yeah, oh. go back, because I tried to do your family tree. I would say to Michael Ignatieff, who is a mutual yeah. friend of ours, that his family killed my family, probably. Yes, yes. <laughs> they were very white Russians, and my family were the, you know, the Fiddler on the Roof family that came from Me the too. poor but village. Fi- but but fi- no, yeah. but we don't have a hospital named after ours, so there might be a diversion somewhere. So... Just go back to the roots, because I think it goes into the 18th century. It family. goes even further. So maybe I can trace mine back to about 1906. So I think it's quite different. But tell my me mother's about fa- Well, my mother's family are from Lithuania. Yeah. Like yours, right? Yeah. How do you Litvaks? Oh, you're from Kiev. So we were, we were Litvaks, and some of them for Odessa, and some of them from Galicia. And Galicianas are notorious, which were Jews from Galicia, which right. is sort of southern Poland around Lv- and Lvov, which is right. now in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And um, Galicianas were, were famous playboys, oh. notorious womanizers and boulevardiers. And food? And they loved food. They were set, they were, they were Usually they go together, don't they? They were Boulevardiers and, you know. So. You know what they were? They were Epicureans. Yeah, nice. Notorious. And so that's my mother's family. But they were interesting because they got out when all the pogroms began in 03, 04. Yeah, Just too. around the same time yeah. as well. We yeah. may have been on the same boat. Yeah, but yours got off in England and mine went to, you know, Ellis Island, right? Well, mine were tricked. We, we bought tickets for Ellis Island. Oh, dear. But when we, after about two days at sea, they said, I'm afraid that um, you're getting off here. And so my family said, but hang on a sec, we bought tickets for New York. 
and we haven't seen the Statue of Liberty. And they said, sorry, look at your tickets. And they looked at the tickets and they said, that's not New York, it's New Cork. New Cork? Yeah, which is oh. Ireland. They were yeah. So they yeah. got off there. But the Montefiores have a longer story. So that's and your father's family, yeah. My father's family. And they would come, the, the sea bags came from Morocco. Sebach. Mm. Sebach. Ah. So that's an Arabic name. And the Montefiores were originally called, we think, called Carvial, which was Spanish. And they were expelled from Spain in 1492. They went to Portugal. And in Portugal, they were expelled in 1498. So they went back to Spain and converted to Catholicism. But they were only pretending. They were crypto-Jews. And when Philip II was trying to recruit governors to govern new Spain, which was Mexico, he gave them the job of governing a huge province. But there was a feud. They were denounced by their servants who spied on them. And they were denounced for secretly being Jews. And most of the family were burnt alive in Mexico City. It's, it's very sinister because when you read about this is these... after Cortes. After yeah, Cortes, yeah. yeah. This is about 1600. And one son got away and went to Italy and adopted the name Montefiore. Ah, because it sounds as sort of, is it sort of it's, it's Italian? Tuscan. It's yeah, Tuscan. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you grew up in this household, a mother from, his family's from Lithuania. Your father felt, did he identify very strongly with being Jewish? And the, yes, and, the family and, was a very Jewish family. My, but my father's family, the Seabag Montefiores, were sort of fox-hunting Jews. Mm. They were very different. While my mother's family, she would kill me for saying this, but they were shtetl Jews from Lithuania and Poland and so on. And what? And your mother's mother, then she would have been born in Lithuania? And Did uh, she cook Lithuanian uh, food? No, they didn't cook Lithuanian, but they didn't really eat latkes and, latkes and, and bagels and, and chicken. But chicken soup was key. Mm. I remember when I was a child, my parents had a huge row once. And my father was being impossible. And my mother just got a thing of chicken soup and poured it over his <gasps> head. Was it hot? It was not that hot, luckily. Oh, but then they started laughing. Yeah, and yeah. Always. But it was very odd. Just for a psychiatrist, yeah. right? <laughs> Did this psychiatrist say that's normal? Did he say that's normal? I Probably, think he would, yeah. he would say that was perfectly normal <laughs> kitchen behavior. I don't know if that happens in your kitchen, Rufy. No, we, we don't. No, we, we stop short of pouring uh, soup over people. So your father would be downstairs with his patients. Would there be family meals? Would there be... Yes. Would you how many siblings do you have? I've got three brothers. I'm the youngest of the whole family. We were always aware that the surgery was going on downstairs. And we were always told, never repeat anything that you see in this house because it would ruin your father. But they were very open. So we knew all the stuff that was happening. And all sorts of crazy stuff happened. People would kind of arrive in the middle of the night with their sort of having had a row with their wife or, you know, somebody was giving birth to a baby or something. It was like growing up. In a theatre, it was very exciting. And, and then, but you would have, would he come up for, for dinner in the He'd evening? He'd come up for dinner. And who did the cooking? Uh, my mother did the cooking, and there'd be, there'd always be delicious kind of food, but not really Jewish food, actually very English food, like roast chickens, roast lamb. Yeah. So she, she, she was born in. She was born in England. Yeah. She was born in, she was born in um, Nottingham or Newcastle. Her grandfather was the first. A Jewish Lord Mayor elected in Newcastle, and and he ran for he ran for Lord Mayor. And when when he was campaigning, they used to say, "We hear you you lie in bed all day," and he replied, "So would you if you were married to Mrs. Wolf?" Oh, <laughs> which was which was a bit, which worked very well. Was that that and, was um, a, it? Won in the election. That's nice. 
They won on the election. And I've got her picture in my room. And she she does look quite quite Someone you want to stay in bed with all day. Not be campaigning. Was food important, though? Was it the family meal that was important? Food was all important. Food Food was all important. Mm. We're absolute Epicureans, Ruthie, and we absolutely live for food. And we love delicious food and hate bad food. Did your father cook? No, he never cooked. Never. He never mm. cooked. Did your mother he, have help? Did she, have she did have help. Domestic people. She did have help. And it was all about meals and everything happened at meals. And I still live for eating. Yeah. And then you bet boarding school, was that a shock? That was a shock. Yeah, that why? That was a shock. Well, the food was appalling for a mm. start. Mm. But on the other hand, my parents were so kind of indul- overindulgent. And I think if I hadn't gone to boarding school, I'm not sure I'd have ever been able to function at all in the world. I mean, I was so close to my parents because I was eight years young. I was an afterthought. So you were the youngest If one. not a mistake, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then boarding school. And because I was Jewish, I had to have special food. I remember once, you know, going to the kitchen and there was a very old lady plucking a chicken. And they said, that's your food. Like mm. she's made, she's good, yeah, because that's all you can eat. Were there other Jewish children? No, there were there? virtually no other Jewish children at my prep school. And then at Harrow, there were quite a lot of Jewish children. If you like listening to Ruthie's Table 4, would you please make sure to rate and review the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You are now a historian, but in the beginning, did you feel that sense that you had to not just write about what was happening, but live it? Yeah, I wrote long letters about describing everything I saw in the mines, the politics. And of course, I worked in a kibbutz as well in Israel, and that was also fascinating. And I saw amazing things there as well, because that was the beginning of you know, the, the, the invasion of Lebanon, which was an appalling mistake on the Israelis' part. So both of those things were good preparations. And the third adventure I went on was going to visit Jewish refuseniks in Russia, in the Soviet Union, with my father. Was that the first time you went? Yes. Right. And that was the beginning of my relationship with Russia. And so all of these things kind of were good preparations. What um, year was that? Like 84. 84. I was going to say, it's the yeah. early 80s. Yeah. I went with Richard to Moscow. He was chairman of the Tate at the time. And the idea was to go with the director to try and get an exchange of Turners that Britain would give them for the, and I'm sure you've seen them, the Matisse in the Hermitage that was in in, um, Leningrad. And we ate 
nothing. I wanted to have the borscht. I wanted to have yeah. the Russian food, but it was quite severe. It was food shortages. Yeah. It was absolutely, it was, it was miserable, really. Yeah. And, yeah. But and did you discover good Russian food when you no. were there? <laughs> no, Have I didn't you? find any more food. I mean, I love sturlet fish, sturgeon. Yeah. Sturgeon, is, yeah. And that is, you know, those are fish that sort of mainly live in the Caspian. Yeah. And that's, they, they create caviar, mm-hmm, of course. But mm-hmm. but Prince Potemkin loved um, sturgeon. He was obsessed with sturgeon. He used to continually roast sturgeon wherever he went. And he had it brought for him, packed in ice, of course, all for hundreds of miles. But we didn't have any of that when we were there. Um, but when I went back later, after boarding school, I went to Cambridge. Okay, let's talk history. about that for a moment. What I was it? History. What was, did you live in in rooms, and did you eat again? In I the... live in rooms. I ate in the the dining room sometimes. But what I really loved doing was eating. There was a great Turkish kebab house there, and we lived in there. And it was called Omar and Ozzy. Okay. And Omar and Ozzy are very key figures. Um, in, in, in my university years. So that was the sort of best food we had. We used to go there every night and we lived on that, that delicious food. And whenever I travel anywhere, I want to experience the food. And, you know, one of the reasons why I've often written about family history, I mean, all of these books, like the Romanovs or The World, is just because family is a way of writing, conveying continuity, but also depth and grit of life. And so I always wanted my books people to know what people were wearing, what music they listened to, and what food they were eating, hopefully, if I could find out. Food is what families do together. Even sort of families that barely hang together still eat together normally, don't they? Pre-1917, that would be the Roman, am I correct? Yeah, the Romanovs, yeah. Was there a real sense of pleasure in food and for, for wealthy people? I mean, what yes. would the Romanovs, what would the aristocracy have eaten? Well, I mean, they, they love French food, of course. French, yeah. And they all had French chefs yeah. who they brought over. Well, they would have eaten all these splendid proper Russian dishes, borscht, what are um, they? Chicken. Yeah, let's talk about the well, borscht real. It's uh, very garlicky, yeah, um, with with beetroot. Yeah. Do you like it hot or cold? Ginger. I have... like it hot. Yeah. What do you? How do you like well, it? Well, I used to, my experience of Russian food was there was none of obviously none of that in our house. But the um, my father is a treat. Would drive us maybe once every couple of months, and we'd go down to New York City and we'd see the big ships, and then we would go to the Russian tea room for oh, lunch yeah. before seeing a musical. And what would you um, eat there? And so we would have the blinis. And I think you could have the choice of cold or hot borscht. I prefer it hot yeah. as well. You can and really feel the flavors much I like, more, I think it's you? delicious. And also there's cinnamon in it, isn't there? And ginger. And mm. even in my time, we used to have massive amounts of caviar. Did you? And blinis. Did you? And, and stroganoff. Beef stroganoff. Yeah, beef stroganoff. It's huge. And that is delicious yeah. when it's done properly. Yeah. And that's, of course, named after the stroganoff family. Who are they? And they are a fascinating family. They were the conquistadors of Russia. They were the, they were the family that um, conquered Siberia. Because they were the, court, the Cortes of Russia. Right. Other stroganoffs. Yeah. yeah. And they, were, they, they rose from merchants who started off having sort of salt farms and doing mining and trading. And then they, Ivan the Terrible allowed them to expand into Siberia. And in just a few decades, 50 years or, or a little over 50 years, the Russians made it all the way to the Pacific. Wow. And so the conquered. Pacific, yeah. yeah. They had to just, there was amazing, there was amazing um, kingdom there called the Khanate of Sibir, which was a Genghis, ruled by Genghis Khan's descendants. And they, they destroyed that, that Khanate. And then they went on and conquered um, Siberia. And the Stroganovs, of course, became very rich and became counts and aristocracy. Yeah. But they started off 
with their own private army of Cossacks conquering Siberia. So that's why Strogonoff, and they were the ones who, was both, who invented um, beef Strogonoff. Oh, I see, they invented it, because I always thought, how fabulous to have a, have a dish named after you, you know. So we used to go to a restaurant in Paris that had the Grand Vifor, and it was a big treat, and they would have a, um, a dish called Pigeon Prince Ranier or whatever. Oh, yeah. And I thought that would be quite But I didn't know that beef struggle. But well, there's a Napoleon dish, isn't there? There's a Napoleon. Yeah, there's, um, there's a dessert, isn't it? Napoleon. Yeah, yeah glass Napoleon yeah, glass or something. Napoleon. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's very, I'd love to have a dish Okay, we could, we could name, we can think of a name. Well, of, that would be exciting uh, in the River Cafe. <laughs> yeah, bean, Montefiore yeah, bean beans. Bean soup, yeah. <laughs> You're interested in history and food and culture and family. Let's just take Russia and, you know, growing up in Russia at a different period of the 20th century or the 21st century. How would food explain some of what you're seeing? The wealth of the nation, the poverty of the nation, the Gorbachev period, the oligarch period, the Putin period. Do you see yes. a kind of well, weaving? Food, food, was, well, food was a hugely important part of, of world history and Russian history. And it's interesting because until until about you know, 150 years ago, there were still massive famines mm. all the time around the world. But scientific improvements in fertilizer and medical advances were the two things that really enabled the explosion of world population. And the reason why most of the famines in the 20th century were actually man-made famines. They weren't the sort of famines that used to happen in the 1840s or in India. And most of them were failures of supply rather than or, or man-made political policies. And an example of that is the, you know, is the, um, are the famines in the 1880s and 1890s. There, were, there was a huge famine in Russia, which the Tsar Alexander III denied was, you know, existed. Then, of course, after the Russian Civil War, there was another huge famine in Russia. Then in the late 20s, Stalin started to... When you call it the Civil War, do you mean the 19, revolution? 1980, yeah, 1917 to 21. Do you call it the Civil War? I call it the Russian Civil War. Why? There were two revolutions, one in February 17, one in October 17. And for a while, the, the Bolsheviks looked like they'd keep power, but lose most of the Russian Empire. And then they launched a series of wars from the center, basing themselves in Moscow again, not Petersburg. And they reconquered, they defeated the divided white powers who were trying to stop them. And then they started to retake all the provinces and the ethnic groups that had been part of the Tsarist Empire. So that included Georgia, that we were talking about earlier in Armenia, Central Asia. They failed to take Poland, but they succeeded in taking Ukraine, which was very decisive because Ukraine was the breadbasket of the yeah. Russian Empire. And traditionally, Ukrainian grain was exported out of Odessa yeah. and Nikolaev to the world. But when Stalin started to collectivize the farms in the late 20s, mm -hmm. he specially victimized the Ukrainians and other minority peoples to the Kazakhs, like a million and a half Kazakhs also died during collectivization. So there was a huge famine while selling food abroad. So the creation of the Soviet Union, the creation of the Stalin dictatorship, all really was based around shortage of food. And that was how Stalin broke the peasantry and broke the Ukrainians, was by starving them. Do you think one of the reasons why Putin still gets so much support is that he has managed to create a sort of secure food environment unlike his well, predecessors? Yeah, of course, Putin has a special connection to food because his grandfather was a chef. I didn't know He was that. a cook. And he cooked at the Astoria, he was the chef at the Astoria Hotel which is now owned by Rocco Forte. The Astoria um, Hotel in Moscow. In St. Petersburg. In St. Petersburg. Yeah. 
and he was the chef. His the grandfather was the chef was, was one of the chefs there. And while he was there, of course, he cooked for everybody, but he cooked for Rasputin. Uh-huh. And then when the, when the revolution happened, Putin's he, he jo- father, grandfather, grandfather, and he joined. Rasputin. He then joined the the secret police, the NKVD, as chef, uh-huh. and cooked for Lenin and Stalin. He was uh-huh. one of Stalin's chefs. So he's one of the most world historic chefs in all of history because he cooked for Rasputin, all sorts of grand dukes, of course, in the Astoria Hotel, but then Lenin and Stalin. Of course, Stalin's chefs were all in this, were all secret police. They were called the service staff and they were within the, the NKVD. Oh, I wonder if I have any in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so, so, so that's Putin's that, so Putin is interested in food. Would you say? I, I, I Do you know? Is he a good eater? I don't think he, I don't think he's an epicurean at all. It he seems to be feel a very like very it, unsympathetic, harsh, somewhat joyless man. I would have I would have said not very interested in culture. Mm. Though he does read. You few never you've books. never met him. I've never met him. No. Though, Why not? Did you before he was before all I'd this? Like but to, you've liked I'd like to, to have met him. Yeah. But then I'd like to have met everybody. Yeah. You know, as a yeah. historian, you want to, I'd like to have, like to have met everybody. Yeah. And I've, we all have our um, fans and our not fans and our detractors, but I know that Putin is a fan of your work. Hey, how do you know that? And also, what's it like? Well, the, you know, the bizarre thing about Putin was that in, as I said earlier, you know, Catherine the Great and Potemkin mm. and the Romanovs like Peter the Great yeah. were the people who got Ukraine for Russia. And... So when I wrote my first book, Catherine the Great and Potemkin, you know, I was approached by the Minister of Culture and also people in the president's office. They said to me, could you write a little essay? Because the book isn't translated into, into Russian. Could you write a little essay about this subject? Which I did. They said to me, like, we're very interested. A certain important person is very interested in reading your book and finding out about the Crimea and how Potemkin took Ukraine and the Crimea. This is in 1999, in 2000, so it's 23 years ago. We were all filled with hope about Vladimir Putin and that he was a a liberal and Tony Blair raved about him. And you may wonder why Russians don't have their own books on this subject, but the reason is because under Stalin and the Soviet Union, Catherine the Great and Potemkin were very out of fashion and weren't studied very much. Anyway, I did that, and then afterwards, when the book was translated into Russian... I was approached again by the Minister of Culture, who said, a certain personage has loved your book, and he would like to give you a present. So, of course, with, with Vladimir Putin, I was always a little worried about what the present's <laughs> going to be. But the present was, we're opening Stalin's archives. Would you like to be the first yeah. to study, to have access to them? So that was the book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar. But jumped 22 years, and when Putin wrote his essay about how Ukraine didn't exist as a state and as a people and started quoting stuff from the history books like mine, I realized that he was going to invade Ukraine. And it's fascinating because when he, when he took Kherson, the city of Kherson, one of Potemkin's cities, that's where Potemkin is buried. And when he withdrew, which was just over six months ago, he stole Potemkin's body. So the history... Where is it? Well, we don't know where it is. But what I think he's going to do is create a sort of big tomb and mausoleum in, in Moscow for Prince Potemkin. But Prince Potemkin and Catherine the Great were children of the Enlightenment. They'd have hated Putin and his Russia today. But the full story is in my books, The Romanovs and Catherine the Great and Potemkin. 
The River Cafe is excited to announce the return of our Italian Christmas gift boxes. Our alternative to the traditional hamper, they bring you all of our favorites from the River Cafe kitchen, the vineyards, and the designers from all over Italy. They're available to pre-order now on shoptherivercafe.co.uk. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you describe Ukraine as the breadbasket and the grain, I mean, that is something we read really since the war started. What is happening with the food now in the war? Is the grain going? Is it? Is well, it... this has really made Africa suffer more than anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right now. Right now. Many African states, like South Africa, for example, had very good relations with the Soviet Union yeah. and their liberation movements were backed by the Soviet Union. They blame the West mm-hmm. and the hypocrisy and imperialism of the West, mm-hmm. even though it's the war of the Russian war and Russian invasion of Ukraine that has actually caused the food shortages. But such is human affairs. It doesn't always, it is not always based on reason. Yeah. But, you know, Ukraine became independent when the Soviet Union broke up. And in some ways, Ukrainians' sense of nation has intensified thanks to Putin's viciousness. Mm-hmm. And food in Ukraine? Have you been during the war? Have you been to Ukraine? I haven't been since the war, mm-hmm. but I was there uh, when I was in the late 90s. And I traveled to Odessa. I loved Odessa. Odessa is one of the great cities in the world, one of my favorites. Is it? And everyone there eats caviar and, of course, and sturgeon. And sturgeon steak is the best food you have there. And that's a piece of sturgeon which you grill? You grill, yeah. yeah. You can have it with some sort of spicy Caucasian sauce, like ajiki sauce. It's delicious. Oh. And yeah. tell me, so you are a writer. You have your, you work at home. I know that your studies in your house. And your wife, Santa, also is a writer. She's a novelist, she, too. So tell us about food in your house now. We've been of your parents' house and boarding school and college and traveling as a, as a, a historian We're very pescatarian. Okay. We eat a lot of fish Mm -hmm. and we love tuna, we love swordfish and we grill a lot of swordfish. We love fresh kind of Mediterranean style food. But I also have various specialities. I do some of the cooking and my favorite dish is an amazing sort of pasta filled with fresh tomatoes, fresh onions, fresh chili, garlic and fish 
I often put sardines in it or sea bass, and it's quite spicy. I put a lot of chili it's in it. It's a Sicilian pasta. You it's know, a sort of Sicilian with pasta. with the sardines, yeah. yeah. The, it's interesting about, you know, because the Italians have this sort of rule of you would never have an egg pasta with fish, but we do crab with yeah. an egg pasta. And then you would never have all these kind of rules. You won't have cheese with fish in a pasta. And we put, we do a langoustine with pecorino and parmesan. It's like a dish that I actually ate in Verona. And so I think, you know, fish pastas are really delicious. I, I, another um, thing I think is Italian rules are, are made to be broken. Yeah, some of them. Because they're, they're quite I dogmatic agree. about what you can do with their food. Mm, and mm. sometimes, you know, one has to break rules. Oh, we, oh, even, though it's, <laughs> even though this is heresy, of course. It's also it's so regional, you yeah, know, that yeah. somebody in one town will do something and then the next town they won't. Well, know. it's the same. Even in, small, even in Georgia, which we started off talking about, you know, there's... That they put eggs in everything in in Ajaria, which is on the coast, Ajaria and Abkhazia, which is the Black Sea coast, where Stalin had all his houses, by the way. But they always put an egg on everything there. Well, you know, inland, in that, in the yeah. most of Georgia, they don't. As two writers, do you have a routine for your writing? Do you no. know that you start at a certain time? No, it's total chaos. Is it? I mean, when I'm not writing, I don't. I just don't do anything, and I spend the whole time sitting in cafes, phoning oh. people and yeah. texting people and reading the paper which is the best thing but when i'm at, when i am i'm writing i live like in a like a coenobite like a monk i live in a very sort of very disciplined way and get up it really early in the morning like at six in the morning and i mean writing the world this, this is my latest book was definitely the hardest thing i've ever done why it almost killed me I mean, obviously, it's an insanely ambitious project. Can you tell us what it is? Well, it's called... A, it's let's called the, let's it's get called everybody the, to buy yes. this book. Yeah. It's called The World, A, a Family History. And it, it tells the whole of world history from the Stone Age to the Drone Age through families in a single narrative. Some of the families you'd have heard of, you know, the Romanovs or the Habsburgs, the, the, the Rothschilds, the Kennedys... And many of them are quite unpleasant families, like the Kim family of North Korea is a big family. We follow them over five generations. Or the Herod family of Judea, who built the temple, or the Ptolemies of Egypt. They are some of the most vicious families. But in other families you won't have heard of, some of them are enslaved families, some are families of doctors. They're not all rulers, in other words. And the great thing about covering family is that in terms of diversity, it's a great way you can cover everywhere the same. And so this book... It's probably the most diverse world history ever written. It covers it, Europe is in its rightful place, but also there's Africa, there's Asia, there's South and North America in immense detail. And of course, the other great thing about family history is it includes women. And we were talking, Ruthie, about about you know the great women that are covered in this book. And again, some of them will be familiar: Cleopatra, Catherine the Great, Margaret Thatcher, and some of them you won't have heard of, but are astonishing characters that we should have heard of like Queen Tamara of Georgia. But, you know, as, as the spectator said, it's succession meets Game of Thrones, as, they, as how the review described <laughs> yeah, it. So, yeah. so I hope that it's fun. I read this and I thought it was a beautiful ending to this book and kind of leading us to the end of our really great conversation. In this book, I've written of the fall of noble cities, the vanishing of kingdoms, the, the rise and fall of dynasties, cruelty on cruelty, folly upon folly, eruptions, massacres, famines pandemics and pollutions, yet again and again in these pages, the high spirits and elevated thoughts, the capacity for joy and kindness, the variety and eccentricity of humanity, the faces of love and the devotion of family run through it all and remind me why I started to write. 
And I thought, you know, the optimism and the joy, using the word joy and life, and that is a very moving piece to read by a writer whose work, as I said, informs, tells stories, takes us places. And so before we, we do say goodbye, what food would you go to for comfort? Oh, what I love is tart tata, mm -hmm. but sugar burnt, mm -hmm. so that it's burnt with a, with a sort of flat, with a fire on yeah. top. And I love eating sugar burnt tart, tata. And do you make it? I, I have made it, but I prefer <laughs> eating. I prefer. I prefer um, eating it in delicious restaurants. Good. Well, thank you so much for today, and thank you for coming. And uh, thanks for having lucky, me. It's so lovely to be here. As I here. said, lucky me. Lucky thank me you. too. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers. It's produced by Willem Malinsky. Our executive producers are Zad Rogers and Faye Stewart. Our production coordinator is Bella Cellini. Special thanks to everyone at the River Cafe. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 